Well, firstly, let me say to uh, Kevin, to the elders and to the congregation, thank you for this opportunity to come and speak to you this morning. This is actually my third visit to your church here. I can't remember many faces. I imagine you won't remember mine. But it's a joy to be here and to acknowledge and to thank you for your partnership in work in New Zealand over many years. You released uh, one of your earlier pastors, Rusty Milton, to come and labor in New Zealand. And he's done that um, with supreme grace and with the blessing of God. And I understand you've continued to supply him lunch money. And I can assure you he's used it well. Recently I had the joy of chatting with Rusty and having him stay with me for a night. And uh, he was telling me that generally five days a week and sometimes more than once in one day he's had lunch with people. And no small part of his ministry and his effectiveness in that Christchurch congregation has been his connectedness with people and his love to meet people where they're at. And I just want to let you know that in a very real and practical way, you facilitated that. And now I've come to do my best again to steal the Vincents from you. (laughs) Uh, Neil and Jennifer are again deeply loved in New Zealand. They were there in the early part of this uh, millennium. And uh, in the years they were there, they came to be deeply respected and loved. Um, Neil says it's really Jennifer that we fell in love with, and he just comes along as well. I'll get a word from Kevin on whether that's really the case later on. (laughs) But no, we... um, Well, let me just mention a year or so ago, I was here in the States as well, and I had breakfast with Neil. And just talking with him again, I came away from the fact, with with this burning awareness that somehow or other we have to get that family back to New Zealand. Firstly, because their hearts are still there. But secondly, because I believe that God's gifted them with a suite of ministry gifts that are going to be a great blessing, not simply to a congregation and Redeemer in Auckland, but to the whole country. So, God willing, uh, we hope you will release hold of them, send them to us in New Zealand and we can assure you we'll take care of them. In fact, I've been watching for the last four months out my study window, a house being built for them so they've a brand new house to go into. Might be a slight squeeze after the double story mansion that they're in now, but uh, I can assure you we will love them well. We all welcome them and we look forward to them being a means of God's grace amongst us in New Zealand. Well, I would like to draw your attention this morning to a passage in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through to 20. And I want to make an apology as I begin. I'm fully well aware that your received text here is the ESV and I have an ESV and I use an ESV, but this is my well-worn Bible, which I want to bring with me to the States for another purpose. So I'm reading from the NIV. Is that okay? You're not going to drive me from the pulpit? So if we turn, please, to Revelation chapter 1, I'd like us to read from verses 9 through to 20. 
As you understand, it's the Apostle John writing, and he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like, or were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The Lord bless the reading of his word to us and may we again just pause for a moment and seek his blessing and grace as we study it together. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you with all our hearts this morning that you have not left us to wander in the darkness of our blindness and ignorance. You have not only spoken to us with the rising of the sun every morning, but you have, through men of God, holy men of old, moved them, stirred them, and caused them to write the scriptures. And we thank you especially this morning for those many years ago You came and in the Spirit on the Lord's day moved your servant John to see visions of glory and instructed him to write them that the church in every age might know of the things that are soon to take place. Open our eyes this morning and give us a fresh sense of the reality and immediacy of the things we read and reflect on today. And do so, we pray, that we might be drawn in fresh love to our Saviour Jesus and to a heightened anticipation of his soon coming, for which we pray in his name. Amen. In just over a month's time, God willing, I hope to be in Singapore, and I've been asked to speak ten times in a week on the subject of worship in the presence of God. And as I have worked on those messages, Again and again and again, my attention has been drawn to the heavenly activity of Christ as our intercessor, 
as our great high priest who enables us to come into the immediate presence of the one who sits upon the throne of grace. As I've worked on that material, I've dipped back into the old Puritan theologian John Owen. And I've been blessed again by his, in my view, unsurpassed appreciation of the present ministry of Jesus in his exalted state in heaven. And as I've pondered that and thought about that, it's been upon my heart, laid upon my heart, that I might share with you this morning some insights, really from Owen as much as anybody, on what Jesus is doing in heaven now. I suggest that most of us don't think very much about that. Our understanding of the person and work of Jesus is confined largely to what we read in the Gospels of his life and ministry from the stable to the cross, beyond the cross, to his resurrection, and ultimately to his ascension. But beyond that, really things are fuzzy. We give very little thought, and sometimes people write hymns, as the old hymn writer wrote, All his work is ended, joyfully we sing, Jesus has gone up in triumph, glory to our King. We're left with the impression that when Jesus left this world, he kind of, as we would say in New Zealand, hung up his boots, put up his feet, and entered into a kind of rest until God again says, time to go back and get your people and bring the end of all things. Friends, that's a a complete mistake. That's totally wrong. And this morning I'd like to draw your attention to this passage in the book of Revelation. There are two books in the New Testament that give us particular insight into Jesus' present ministry in heaven. The first of them is the book of Hebrews, where again and again we are admitted to the mystery of Jesus entering into the heavenly sanctuary and there serving as a great high priest in the presence of God. It's a wonderful picture the book of Hebrews gives us of the current ministry of Jesus in heaven. But in the book of Revelation, even as Kevin mentioned and alluded to in his prayer, we have a vision not so much of Jesus as the priest, but as the one God has given a name which is above every name, to be prince of the kings of this world, to bring about the completion of God's purpose for this present age, and to usher in the age to come. He is the glorified king. And that's the image and vision that John has granted of, well, it's partially the vision that John has granted. Those of you that know the book of Revelation will know that it is the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show to his servants and which he sent and signified to them through an angel to his servant John. And John, as he was on that penal colony or that little island, the rocky island about 40 miles southwest of Ephesus, was in the spirit on the Lord's day on one occasion when probably in a spirit of ecstasy, maybe not the ordinary, in the spirit that we hope to enjoy even as we gather here this morning, but probably in a heightened sense of ecstatic spiritual experience, John is given a vision to see things in the invisible world. 
Even as Elisha, the prophet long ago, prayed that his servant would have his eyes opened and his eyes were opened and he was able to see the chariots of the host of God surrounding Dothan, that city. John, in the spirit, was able to see things that belonged in the spiritual realm. And the first vision he sees is a vision that we have recorded in this passage I've read to you. Let's take a moment, firstly, just to get an overview of what John saw. And secondly, I want to draw attention to four important lessons that we can derive from this concerning Jesus' present work in heaven. And then lastly, I'd love us to take home with us three particular implications that flow from this. But firstly, let's get a bit of a picture of this vision. I love the way John introduces this in verse 9. If you'll bear with me just a second. A number of years ago, I was in Sydney to speak at a conference, and I was staying with a fellow pastor. And he was a pastor that belonged to what at that particular time was called a heavy shepherding movement. And it was a movement in which pastors and people were made to understand their place. And he insisted on being called Pastor So-and-so by everybody. Pastor pa- And when I read statements like this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, I think, wow, that's it. That really is what grace does create in a community of God's people. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom. Well, here he is. He's on that island of Patmos. And while he's there in the spirit on the Lord's day, he hears a voice behind him, and it's a voice like a trumpet. And turning around to see that voice as we would ourselves, what he sees is not just a trumpet. He doesn't see a trumpet at all. But we're told, firstly, what he sees is seven golden lampstands or candlesticks. Now, I love to flip over a page or two to the fourth chapter where John, after he has received these messages for the seven churches, looks and there before me, he says, was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like the trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. In chapter 1, what John sees, the locus of John's vision is not in the heavens and it's not a throne, but here what he sees are these seven lampstands. And the locus seems to be on earth. The location seems to be on earth. The seven golden candlesticks or lampstands undoubtedly relate back to the single seven-branched candelabra which was in the holy place and the tabernacle and in the temple. Now, not simply a single seven-branched candlestick, but distinct candlesticks in this new age and era of the church where churches are represented as light bearers in the midst of the world. So John immediately has a vision of the church. The first, just as in chapter 4, he sees a throne in the heavens. Here, he sees candlesticks. And in the midst of those candlesticks, he sees one like unto the Son of Man. And he's dressed in this long robe, which has a golden sash about it. 
And the features of this one like unto the Son of Man are described. What striking features they are. His hair, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. I've actually seen an artist's impression of this vision. I'm sure it's just a fragile, failed attempt to capture something which is awesomely and indescribably wonderful. But just try and picture these features. A head and hair which is white, white as snow, reflecting, no doubt, on the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. But beyond that, eyes that were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. One of the impressive waterfalls we have in New Zealand is called the Hooker Falls. Now, not necessarily, they're nowhere near as big as the Niagara Falls, but they make a tremendous noise. And this is the sound of the voice of the one who spoke is like rushing water, just like in a tremendous waterfall. In his right hand, we are told, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its brilliance. What a glorious picture this is. And then we're told of John's response, verse 17. When I saw him, he said, I fell at his feet as though dead. Sometimes in my discussions with brothers who have a different understanding of things that are going to end, the way that this age is going to end, I come back to them and say, I cannot conceive for a moment that the glorified Son of God is going to conceal his glory in any way at all when he returns to this world. And I cannot possibly conceive of him having an ordinary existence amongst ordinary people. Here, John sees him. He falls on his face. <laughs> so dead. That is the splendor, the awe, and the glory of this great heavenly figure. And so when John sees him, he falls prostrate at his feet. But then, the one whom he sees in this vision places his right hand on him and says, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Here, and later on, it becomes indisputably clear that this vision is a vision of the risen, glorified Lord Jesus that John sees. It's not the only form in which John sees a vision of Christ. In chapter 5, he's pictured as a lamb that had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. Quite a different picture or depiction of the risen Christ there. But here, he's in the form of one like the Son of Man with these magnificent features. It's Jesus. It's the risen Christ that John is seeing in, in a glorious uh, visionary form. And Jesus speaks to him, lifts him up, recommissions him. Right, he says, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands. Is this the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches? And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, that's the picture. What a glorious first vision. Chapter 4 tells us that beyond that, 
That door opens in the heavens and John is able to then go up into the heavenly realm and see things that pertain to the more distant future or at least the future to come. But here, here's a picture of the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord, in the midst of of lampstands that are in fact seven historical churches then. So that's the picture. Now, there are four... I think very vital principles that emerge from this or very vital insights we gain into what Jesus is doing in heaven from these words. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is this, that the risen Lord Jesus Christ is ceaselessly active. Ceaselessly active. I half-quoted the chorus of that hymn, A Golden Harps Are Sounding, Uh, angel voices sing before and I just repeat that chorus it said all his work is ended Uh, glory to the king now all his work is not ended this passage indicates to us that the risen Lord Jesus Christ is not taking a prolonged siesta he hasn't entered into a drug induced kind of sleep that suddenly he's going to wake from at the end of this age Jesus is depicted here firstly in the midst of his churches. If you go to chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that he's actually walking among the seven churches. And I love to picture that priest in the holy place whose task it is particularly to take care and make sure that those seven lamps are burning. He's inspecting them and ensuring that they're continuing to burn. So the Lord Jesus is here depicted to us as one walking in the midst of the lampstands. And as the letters to the churches unfold, we learn that he sees, he knows, he warns, he disciplines, he threatens. I'll come and take this candlestick away, he says. Repent or else I'll come and fight against you. The Lord Jesus is not inactive unaware, insensitive or unconcerned about what's happening in the world or especially here in his churches. He is ceaselessly active. When I think of this, I think of those wonderful words at the opening part of his, what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. As Jesus looked through and beyond the cross to his being restored back to his Father in heaven. He spoke of that as his glorification. After Jesus had said this, he looked towards the heavens and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all that those you have given him. I love that idea. We're familiar with the Great Commission. Often we don't stress Clearly and emphatically enough, the opening part of that, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me, going therefore, etc. We don't stress that first part because 
And that 17th chapter of John, that's what Jesus is doing. He says, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you, for you have given me authority over all things to give eternal life to those you've given me. Jesus anticipated going back to be with his Father in heaven, that from his throne in heaven he might gather, protect, sanctify, and ultimately present his whole church to his Father. He wasn't going back to take his boots off or sandals off. He was going back from a kingly throne with authority over all things to bring salvation, protection, and sanctification to the ones that God had given him. So it is in the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. We find that John, after seeing this great throne in the heavens, Next sees a seven-sealed scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne and nobody is worthy to take the scroll and unseal it until the Lamb appears. The Lamb who is Jesus, who has authority to unroll the scroll, which, okay, allowing for divergent understandings, I think represents God's decree and purpose and plan for the redemption and salvation and restoration of the world. Who is able to take and administer and unfold it? The risen lamb is. Into the hands of the risen Christ, the Father has put authority, all authority in heaven and earth. And he reigns and rules, not only over his church, but over kings, princes, local administrators over you and me in order to bring about his ultimate triumph and his purpose. Jesus is ceaselessly active in heaven. second thing this passage teaches us is this. Jesus is ceaselessly active in heaven in the power of his glorified humanity. And I think that's important for us to understand. He's ceaselessly active in the power of his glorified humanity. You see, that is what we see in this vision. The heavenly being that John sees in this vision is one like unto the Son of Man. Now, that term first appears in Daniel chapter 3, 7 verse 13, where Daniel sees a, a picture of the Ancient of Days and thrones brought, and one like unto the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days. Authority is given unto him. Ultimately, kingdoms are given unto him and are given to the saints. Now, Jesus himself loved that term the Son of Man, and used it again and again of himself. And that's what John sees in this book of Revelation. He sees a vision of one like unto the Son of Man. Now, however we understand that, it is meant to associate the risen Christ with humans, with our humanity. But the picture we're given here is not just simply of a human in the form that Jesus had whilst he was on earth. The humanity of Jesus is depicted here to John in terms and symbols that indicate his majesty, his authority, eyes like flames of fire, a voice like the sound of many waters, hear, head, face like the sun. Humanity, but glorified humanity. Powerful humanity. What a wonderful thing that is. 
Again, the writer of the Hebrews picks that up, doesn't he? Reminding us that the great high priest we have before the throne of God, to whom all power is given, is a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every respect we are. The Jesus that is in heaven is still the God-man. His humanity, however, no longer cloaks and veils his divinity. But even as on the Mount of Transfiguration there was the outflashing of his glory, so now in the heavens he rules and reigns as the God-man whose humanity is glorified. Powerful, wondrous, without limit. The third thing I want you to note from this passage is this. That the Lord Jesus Christ in the heaven not only is ceaselessly active in the power of his glorified humanity, but he performs still the offices of prophet, priest, and king. There is an allusion to those three offices in these verses. The long robe that Jesus is dressed in as he moves amongst the candlesticks calls back to mind the long garment of the priest and especially of the high priest which was to go down to the ground to hide his nakedness. He has a girdle, however, which is a golden girdle. In the Old Testament it was a linen girdle, but here it's golden And gold is unquestionably a symbol of royalty. He is a king-priest in the heavens. And not only is he that, but he is also a prophet. He speaks. Out of his mouth comes sounds and words like mighty waters. But he's got a word for John. And he's got words for the churches. Now, it is so, so important for us to see and to understand in the bigger scope of things that before time when it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to plan and purpose this great scheme of redemption, to ordain that the Son should be the Christ, the God-man, and the prophet, priest, and king of the people that God would give to him that he would rule over them and protect them as a king, that he would redeem and save them and intercede for them as a priest, and that he would speak to them and guide them and teach them and fill them with wisdom as a prophet. Jesus did that whilst he was on earth, but he continues to do that and to fulfill his mediatorial work as prophet, priest, and king in heaven. All of those things, the gospel as it goes forth today, goes forth in the power of the one who has the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth to bring light and life to people through his word. Christ is still exercising his ministry as the great prophet through his spirit and word in the world. He continues to appear in the presence of God for you and me. In the book of Hebrews again, chapter 12, there's specific mention that we have come not to an earthly mountain that can be shaken and burned, but to a heavenly Mount Zion. And that heavenly company is spoken of in terms of an innumerable host of angels. To the firstborn, the church of the firstborn, 
to the spirits of just men made perfect, to God the judge, to Jesus the mediator, and it also says this, and to the blood of sprinkling, which speaks better things than the blood of Abel. And that seems to me to say this, that there is a continuing efficacy or presentation, as it were, of Jesus' expiatory sacrificial death always being made in the presence of God for us. He continues his priestly activity. And he rules, as I've mentioned, not only over his church, but over the nations of men. Jesus is not inactive. And he will do that and continue to do that until all his enemies are put under his feet. And he at last delivers the kingdom up to the Father. And then he too will come under the Father and God will be all and in all. He is busy, active. So he is ceaselessly active in the power of his glorified humanity and performing the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And the last thing we can see is that he does all of these things with an eye to the church. We cannot separate Jesus from the church. Jesus, the Christ, has been given by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the eternal counsel of God's plan, the church to be his body over which he rules. It is his fullness. How I love those words right at the end of Ephesians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul is talking about the greatness of God's power toward us, which is like the power that he exercised in raising Jesus from the dead. And he says this, And he, God, placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. I just love that. He's exalted Christ to be head over all things, what? For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now those last words are hard to understand their exact meaning, but in essence they mean this, that Jesus himself cannot be separated from his church and the church cannot be separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. So in his heavenly glory, heavenly majesty, kingly rule, priestly activity, Jesus is always, always active on behalf of his church. What an incredible thing. The king, ruler, governor of the universe doing all things for the church. Hebrews 6.20 tells us that Jesus went through the veil into the heavenly sanctuary to be there on our behalf. He has entered into the presence of God for us. Hebrews 9.24 His heavenly activity is an eye for his church. He loves his church. Cannot be separated from his church. And the church cannot be separated from him. So what's Jesus doing in heaven? He's not having a siesta. Not by any means. He is continuing his mediatorial task until it is all completed. And not one that the Father has given him shall be lost. But he will raise him up on the last day to enter into that glory and enjoyment of God that awaits us in the eternal kingdom. 
Let me just give you three, and I'll use an American term because we don't use this term in New Zealand, but I'll give you three takeaways. I first heard the term takeaways in sermons up in Briarwood Church when Harry Reader used it. Then when Rusty came and preached, he says, here are some takeaways. In New Zealand, takeaways are fish and chips. <laughs> or hamburgers and chips or something like that. But I understand what they mean anyway. Here's something for you to take away. There's three things that struck my mind as I just reflected on this again. What's Jesus doing in heaven? And the first thing was this, you know, we need to train ourselves to be thinking constantly of the risen Lord and his heavenly activity. It's not enough for us to think of Jesus just once a week or even once a day. But if we are to really understand reality, we have to understand that reality finds its source and core in God and especially in his son who sits on the throne of the universe. One author has written this, he said, people can be divided on the basis of whether they think the visible world is all that there is or is most important and those who think that it's not all that there is. And I think that's true. The naturalists of our day think that what we see and hear and sense and smell is all that there is. As Christian people, we are called to believe that that's not ultimate reality. Ultimate reality lies behind that. And the God who is the author of all things and is the sustainer of all things, is the controller of all things, is the ruler of all things, and who will one day manifest himself in glory and power to judge and then to be present with his people forever in his kingdom. That's where ultimate reality is. And if it is true that our lives and the lives of our nations and the lives of this world are ultimately in the hand of our risen Redeemer, we ought to think of him more than we do. Our whole lives ought to rotate around the center of the risen King. So, to do that, however, we need to train ourselves. Again, one author has said, Jesus himself. I don't know whether we can validly say this, but he made this comment that Jesus himself trained himself to live in the constant awareness of companionship with his heavenly Father. I think that that was true. Jesus said, I'm not alone. He spoke to his disciples and John 16 said, look, I'm going to leave you and you will abandon me and leave me. But he says, I'm not alone. I am never alone. The one who sent me is always with me. And I think that that was more than just empty words. I think Jesus was constantly aware of the personal companionship of his heavenly father. And yet he was human. And he was affected by sight, smell, senses, hunger, and all the rest as we are. And yet, through constant, deliberate, disciplined training, I think, he disciplines up to the constant awareness of living in the companionship of his Heavenly Father. I think we need to train ourselves to live our moments and our days aware of the constant companionship of our Heavenly King, who is our Lord and Saviour. The second thing is I think we need to remind ourselves of the glory and splendor and wonder of the risen Jesus. 
Who amongst us knows or feels a great confidence in praying? Kevin this morning shared two things that he always feels he never does enough of. I won't mention the second, but the first was he doesn't pray. And I said, right, we, 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 none of us, none of us are maestros in prayer. You know, I can't help but wonder if we, we've not been somehow drugged and duped a little bit in our culture and in our day to being over-familiar with Jesus when we pray. Let me just give a little illustration. 1981, my wife and I were in Holland and we were visiting with family friends or friends of the family over there and there was a minister from a particular church came and we were chatting together and he said, who are some of the theologians and writers and preachers and pastors you look up to? And I said, well, I've been greatly influenced over the years by men like Calvin, etc., but... Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and one or two others. He said, oh, they are little Christ men. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, their Christ is too small. They get too close to him. And they, they speak too intimately of Jesus. Now, I don't agree with them. I think that part of the marvel of grace is that it's God's desire for us is not simply to be reconciled to him, but to be his children and to be friends with him eternally. So I do believe that intimacy belongs to the gospel. It's at the heart of the gospel. But we must never lose that counterbalance, which is awe. Awe and intimacy belong together. Awe and intimacy. We see it here in John. Awe and intimacy. So even as we approach our Lord Jesus, I confess I shudder with the buddy-like approach to Jesus. He, he is not just our buddy. He is God. He is man. But he is man in his glorified majesty. That were we to behold him now with earthly flesh, we like John would be prostrate as dead. So, There is this wonder of knowing that he unashamedly identifies with us as his brothers. Brothers. That's a wonderful thing. But he's high and lifted up. And so even as we take his precious name upon our lips, our blessed Savior, I have a journal, one of my journals is called Conversations with Jesus. And in that I write as though I were conversing with him and I always begin with the words, Blessed Lord. And I write with the intimacy of a brother to a brother, but it's to my blessed Lord. Blessed Lord. So we need to remember that. He is like us, he is one of us, and yet he is exalted high above us. And we need to remember those things. And the last is this. If Jesus is the risen prophet, priest, and king, who administers all the purposes and plans of God to bring them to their redemptive fullness and completion. How important it is for us to align our lives with his. Now last night, Jennifer showed me a bow that she had carved out of a rough branch from a tree. I'm not sure what kind of tree it was, but I wasn't sure. When she told me about this, I was expecting still a pretty rough um, branch which had been forced into a bit of a bow shape. But wow, I saw this. Has anybody seen it? It is a magnificent bit of carving. 
And this rough, horny, um, bit of a branch has been firstly carved, she told me first, with a mallet and a chisel or a knife, and then with a rasp, and then with sandpaper. And you can run your hand up and down that bow, and it's just like satin. Now, she would not have been able to get that finish on that bow unless she had worked with the grain. I did enough woodwork in my early years to know you go across the grain diagonally or against the grain and you're going to chip wood or leave it roughened. The only way to get a satin smooth finish is to go with the grain. And she's gone with the grain, especially in that final sanding process, and she's ended up with something which is satin-like in its feel. Just beautiful. Friends, that's a picture of what we need to do if we want our lives to count for eternity. We are members of the body of Jesus. This local church is a manifestation of his body in Clanton, in which he lives and through which he wants to work as he continues his redemptive ministry in this region and in the world. And if our lives and our churches are to count for eternity, we have to align our activities with his purposes. 35 years or more ago, God called me out of university teaching to become a pastor. My professor, with tears running down his face, he said, I can't understand what you're doing. You are leaving influence with hundreds of students to go and drink cups of tea with old ladies. Well, Kevin, it's not all about that, is it? (laughs) However... The one thing he didn't understand was this. I could have invested my life in university teaching and found it rewarding and fulfilling. But following the Lord's calling in a life is about investing in things a life of eternal significance. It's going to last for eternity because Christ is ruling over all things to bring them to their eternal fulfillment and completion. And if our lives and our churches are aligned with him, they will not be wood, hay and stubble on the last day, but gold, silver and precious stones. Friends, there is nothing better we can do individually or corporately than to have our lives aligned with and in sync with the one who rules over all things to the glory of God in heaven. Shall we pray together? Let's do that. Our Father, thank you for giving us in your word a way of parting the curtain of sense and enabling us to see spiritual and eternal things. And we do want to thank you with all our hearts this morning that you have exalted your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and given him a name which is above every name, and things now and things to come, and that he is ordering and moving all things to your glory, to their final end. Thank you that he is our saviour, and even in his risen glory, has us written upon the palms of his hand, and engraven upon his heart.
Enable us to live for him now, we pray, as we hope for his coming and remember gratefully his death for us. In Jesus' name, amen.